You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience on this fine Thursday, April 25th. We are just getting started this week, but unfortunately, tomorrow I will be out. I know I could hear the groans and the complaints. Those of you who are fixed on the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, because frankly, you will not hear the truth in most other parts of conservative media, which isn't really that conservative. Now, if I were like other conservative media today, I'd give you my hot takes on the Democrat primary, because certainly we don't have much to say about conservatism, so we could just focus on the left, as if we're not the left, but then act like the left and promote their policies albeit one tranche over. Um, man, Donald Trump really stuck it to, to Joe Biden today. I mean, I mean, the election's over. I mean, we won. We won our country. Our republic is restored. Uh, this, is, this is awesome. This is, this is a dream come true. The president invited Sleepy Joe Biden. Welcome to the race, Sleepy Joe. I only hope you have the intelligence long in doubt to wage a successful primary campaign. It will be nasty. You'll be dealing with people who truly have some very sick and demented ideas. But if you make it, I will see you at the starting gate. And like with every tweet, every day, our base has something to talk about. Those that are supposedly representing the country class of America that are disenfranchised that have their sovereignty stolen, that have no voice, have these talkers that focus time on this. Now, look, I get a kick out of a president who fights. But tweeting is not fighting. We need a fighter, not a tweeter. What do I mean? Well, really, this is a narrative we've been talking about from day one of this presidency. Where on the one hand, the president's rhetoric often aligns with a lot of, a lot of stuff we've long believed in, that other Republicans refuse to articulate, but then he fails to complete that articulation, and then most importantly, to actually enact it, and in fact, even with him in charge, and with Democrats officially out of power, we get the Democrat results on any given policy, and certainly nowhere is this more evident than with immigration. So. I'm very thankful for the fact that yesterday he tweeted out what a disgrace it was, what happened with our soldiers and the Mexican soldiers, and we're going to send armed soldiers to the, to the border. But Trump tweeting that doesn't make it happen. None of what he said has happened. I mean, he's already on to threatening to close the border again for the second time and not doing it. So the, the real issue is, and I know I sound like a broken record, but we don't have a movement in place, at least not one with a megaphone bigger than mine, which unfortunately is not big enough, to make it happen. Now, I'm honored by the fact that the president is seeing some of my stuff 
And I think he is responding to it, but he is responding to my articles almost as if I have more power than he does. Almost as if he's like taking it and like blogging about it. He's a blogger. We don't need a blogger. We need a commander in chief. He's the commander in chief of the military. He could send the military down there. We have a list of 10. And then if you count my piece on expedited removal, 11 ideas. They should have been done a year ago, six months ago, four months ago, in February. And they still haven't been done. Remember the birthright citizenship promise? So are we prepared to go the next six years where the Democrats continuously move that Overton window further and further to the loony bin left and our side gets so fixated on it that ironically we get moved along in that Overton window and we just get entertained by the president's response to the loony bin while ironically, by hook or by crook, whoever you want to blame, if you don't want to blame Trump, you can't deny that it's happening. We are implementing the loony bin policies. You can't deny the fact that on the one hand, we have a president who rhetorically is stronger on immigration than we've had in the modern era. But on the other hand, the reality of what we face is worse than ever, much worse than any time during Obama's presidency. You can make excuses. Some of them might be valid. Some of them might not be. But you certainly cannot deny the reality that we're not winning and we're losing. And we have to find a way to win. And winning doesn't just mean commentating on the Democrat primary or even defeating the Democrats in November. Because nothing will change if we don't change the conservative movement to actually force policy outcomes. Again, what is this nightmare about the Democrats? Oh my gosh, you don't understand. They're crazy. Each one's trying to outleft the next one. Well, let, let's pick an example. So Joe Biden, I mean, is regarded as the most sane of the candidates, right? I mean, I don't think we've ever imagined there would come a day when Joe Biden would be the most moderate of the candidates. But the most moderate of the candidates said in a statement this week, basically, there's no such thing as illegal aliens. They're already Americans. Now, you guys might be thinking, oh, man, we sure as heck better make sure Trump wins. I mean, man, we can't have these guys win. And and look, I I, I don't disagree. But (laughs) what everyone's ignoring is that this this iterandum of Biden and the other Democrats, that ideal that they are striving for, that they're articulating, is the reality on the ground in the third year into Trump's presidency. Every illegal who comes to our border under any circumstance is brought in and processed, and most are released immediately, about 1,600 to 2,000 a day. Do you understand the social transformation, the security concerns, the type of culture you're bringing in? Every day, we are losing the last vestiges of our America. I mean, look, 
let's face it, I think we're all realists here, a lot of it's gone. A lot of the areas are gone. A lot of parts of our country geographically are irrevocably taken over. I mean, I don't mean to sound depressing here, but I think that's pretty obvious. Um, You know, it's just a no-brainer. But my goal here is to at least preserve some areas where we can have a semblance of our culture, our security, where you're not driving around and suddenly you're exposed to all the vices of everything happening in Mexico and and Guatemala, whether it's the sex trafficking, the human trafficking, the, the drug trafficking, the gruesome murders. You know, just today I have an article out where in Memphis, Tennessee, which, by the way, is a sanctuary, Shelby County, Tennessee, an illegal alien from Honduras who was deported five times, most as recently as December 2016. So that means he came in at some time during Trump's presidency with our border agents completely abolished in terms of their job of patrolling. They're now the babysitting service for Central America. These guys are all coming in. This guy stomped a four-month-old baby to death. Now, I don't think it was an American. It looks like it was another illegal alien. It was this one of his, his mistress or something, and he found out that the baby wasn't indeed conceived from him, so he got all mad and stomped the baby to death. We certainly have violent people inherent in our country. But by golly, when you bring in concentrated cultures that act like this and close-knit communities that fundamentally transform America. It's something you can never, it, it's worse than just security. It's, it's just a systemic, systemic problem. Now, sorry for that noise in the background here. Just so much going on here. My phone's blowing up. Um, the point here is that we're at a crossroads. We're at a crossroads as a nation. The Overton window has irrevocably been moved too far to the left on many fiscal and social issues. On this issue, it's very clear that between the radicalism of the Democrats and the evidence we have in our hands of how bad things are, I think we could get 51% of the people to be outraged and to change course. But we need leaders to push this president in that direction. It will not happen through tweets. The opposite is happening. Right now, Fox News is touting a comprehensive immigration plan being put together by Jared F. and Kushner. Someone needs to get in his face. I've done it already, but I'm not big enough. And tell him, thank you for your son-in-law, but no thanks. God bless your family time, but we voted for the opposite. You may as well bring Hillary in the White House. Okay? This man is bringing in one open border person after another. 
This man wrote an article in Time Magazine, 15 Lessons I Learned from Criminal Justice Reform. You know what's interesting going on? We spent a lot of time on this issue last year. No one in conservative media focused on it except for the few that were bought into it. But suddenly now people are onto it because, again, they don't have views of their own unless they see Democrats doing something. So now they see one Democrat presidential candidate after another competing with each other to have more felons vote. Oh, no, I'll have sex offenders vote, vote while they're in jail for the first year. No, I'll have sex offenders vote while they're raping someone, right? You know, each one is uh, g- getting to the left of the next. And then our guy's like, oh, my gosh, oh, we can't have these Democrats win. I'm like, you schmucks. Yeah, rather than joining with me for the last two years to build a movement to fight this, you validated it and legitimized it from the right and said it's a conservative principle. Well, I, I didn't mean for uh, all these felons to be voting. Yeah, but when you go and validate their points that we're too tough on crime and we lock too many people up and for too long and we're too harsh on criminals and they paid their debt to society, well, you lost argument already. It was always about this. So therefore, they need to vote. It's, it was always about that. It's the same thing Open Borders is about for the Democrats. And yet we had 99% of the money, of the personnel, of the time, of the talent, of the right of center movement at a professional level, not the voters, but at a professional level, putting their foot on the gas pedal for one of the most odious forms of social transformation of this country. Criminal justice reform when the president campaigned on the exact opposite. So um, that's where we are. It's time we harness this broad issue of social transformation, crime, mayhem, from the border, from mass migration, and make this the issue of our time. And make our last stand. It's time to remember the Alamo. And as far as the president's concerned, someone needs to get to him, and the movement needs to say what I'm saying, that it's time to stop telegraphing your punches and then not punching. Instead, you need to punch. This is what he does. He always says, oh, maybe I'll do this. And then he doesn't do it. It's kind of like the guy that goes agonizingly slow into a cold pool of water. So you get the worst of all ends. You get the discomfort of of going in, but then you never get used to it. You don't get the benefit of just jumping right in. Do the policies. Do what you did with the Iran deal. You wake up one day, it's gone. That's the new baseline. Like the Democrats do. They just do. They, They come, they see, they conquer. They have an issue. They want it. They do it. They get the courts to do it right away. If they're in power, they'll certainly do it right away in the political branches. They don't talk about it. They don't threaten. They do. And that sets a new baseline, a reality, that the other side then has to deal with. He either needs to do a 212 shutoff, or he needs to just very simply have his own officials just turn down the asylum and do expedited removal. And they go together. We'll explain that a little bit more if we have time. I want to get to that in a minute. 
I want to get to, I'm going to get to the latest at the border in a minute. But speaking of this, um, of this business, you know, some of you really send me beautiful emails, just very well written, very heartfelt. Um, we have a lot of very smart people in this audience with a lot of life experience, expertise on things that that are, are above my expertise. I'm just a guy in his 30s that never had a normal job. Um, and, you know, uh, because I don't, therefore, I could spend all day with this. And that's just the only difference why I might know more on some things than other people, just because this is what I do. And frankly, other people should be doing this in this business. But instead, you know, they don't have a desire to learn. I always have a desire to learn from all people. Learn more. Um, and I certainly learn a lot from you. And I, I apologize if I don't have the ability to always answer back or if I remember to answer all the emails I try. I, a majority of them, I usually am able to respond. So just understand that. But I usually, I, I, I see most of them unless it goes to spam and somehow I miss it. And by the way, sorry about my four-year-old Zach in the background, just screaming his head off if you could hear it. Um, he was home today for a doctor's appointment. His his tonsils were ironically swollen, yet his lung power seems to have not been reduced at all. So, uh, you know, he's a mixture of singing and screaming and tantruming. So I don't know. Um, so just bear with me on that. I gotta gotta secure my office more. It's like kind of like half soundproof, but uh, in the home office, but not not enough, evidently, for him. So he keeps uh, coming in the background. So hopefully, maybe this will give you a more of a homey uh, homey feel. Um, but one one of the emails that I got recently, uh, late yesterday, a blockbuster email. Um, really, truly, one of the one of the best, and it was so riveting. I said to myself, um. I had to I had to read it on the on on air myself. This is from Darlene, and um, by the way, Darlene, just so you know, if you're listening, I sent it to our two Texas guests that we usually have to to talk about the border, Dan Steiner from yesterday and Jason Jones, and they were like, "Man, this is really going to keep keep my thoughts churning all night." They were very into it. Um. Just truly, truly, I think encapsulates everything we've been talking about with the stolen sovereignty, the societal transformation without representation that really is much more severe than what the colonists were dealing with during the times of the revolution, King George, taxation without representation. This is much more existential. And, you know, when you just tie together everything that's going on here, it is a it's very hard to get stoked up about anything else and you know i'm easily stoked about almost any issue you know from healthcare to foreign policy to um spending education you name it this issue everything that's tied in with our stolen sovereignty narrative which really does run the gambit it's gangs it's drugs it's crime it's terrorism ties in Culture, voting, demographics, foreign policy. I mean, national security, it all ties in. All the most important issues. 
But um, she starts off saying, I have one beef with your guest. That was Colonel Dan Steiner from yesterday. And she kind of says that a little bit tongue-in-cheek and sarcastic, meaning he was a great guest. But she's saying, in some ways, he didn't even say the point strong enough. Let me give you my bona fides. I was born in the Rio Grande Valley, and my father served in Mexico as an agent of the USDA for much of my childhood. Much of his work took him to the Guatemalan border. That's in the Chiapas area, by the way, which at that time, the communists controlled, making it extremely dangerous. Cannibals still roamed the vicinity. We quickly learned a lot about Guatemala. During my high school years, my family moved to West Texas. When I say I know this Texas-Mexico-Guatemala issue, I'm not exaggerating. Because of the private school I attended, I grew up in the political class of Mexico in the late 60s into the mid-70s. I went to school with President Echevarria's cousins and with the children of all the major industrialists, a.k.a. the political influencers. The common conversation around lunch was a plan that would be implemented eventually. That plan involved their dream of emptying Mexico of its criminals and impoverished class. They carried a huge, and, and, it's, and, and remember, she's talking here in the late 60s, mid-70s. <laughs> it's it's pretty, pretty eerie listening to this story, given what we know happened. She continues, they carried a huge grudge because of the loss of the Mexican-American War. Americans do not understand the depth of grudges or length of time they are carried in other cultures. This also leads Mexicans to have a huge infinity, assuming she means affinity for Muslims, and a hatred for Cubans. But that best saved for another letter. Yeah, I mean, by the way, just to diverge before we continue with Darlene's email, I mean, we, we did a couple of shows on this last year with Joseph Humeyer and some others about the growing Islamization of Latin America. Um, and you got the growing Muslim presence in the Chiapas region of Mexico in the South. There's a reason for that, that, that burning, seething, Chip on the shoulder, liberation theology, very much ties in. It's it's kind of like what you see in America with the Nation of Islam and the Farrakhan folks. So kind of the the gangster culture, grievance culture mixing with Islam. You have that a lot um, in Mexico and Latin America, and it's it's a very big problem. But uh, let's continue. My classmates. This was in Mexico. My classmates never lacked for excessively expensive clothing personal maids and chauffeurs, and each had their first car in seventh grade. The culture of corruption in the midst of those most wealthy of students was such that I literally didn't dare leave a pencil on my desk. If I went to the teacher's desk, everything went with me or I would be replacing it later. My classmates lived in extreme wealth, such as I have never seen in the U.S., but they stole pencils. (laughs) Corruption and theft is a source of pride in this group, concern for what American politicians care about, their corruption does not exist. Again, very deep. Let that, let that sink in. What we see with the Mexican government, what we see with a lot of those coming here, let that seep in. Identity theft, everything built on stealing theft. Very, very profound. Every time President Trump threatens Mexico, again, I just want you to know why I started off the show on these hollow threats telegraphing your punching but not punching, tweeting but not being a fighter. Listen to what Darlene is, is uh, explaining here. 
Every time President Trump threatens Mexico, I can hear my ex-classmates laughing at how gullible he is to think that Mexico cares about his words. He clearly, clearly doesn't understand with whom he is dealing. In the 1960s, just as the U.S. drug scene was heating up, the Mexican government allowed drug sales in the open in the children's park of most prominent parts of wealthy Monterey. Those of us who lived in the best parts of the city hired vigilance to protect us from the police. I was blonde and blue-eyed, so I never even set foot in the front yard without an adult present. Such was the threat of rape and kidnapping, even for a child. Man of fire was not fiction. Only an idiot who doesn't understand cultures other than ours believes Mexico will help us deal with precisely the plan they have created, aided, and abetted. President Trump does not understand what he is up against. You know, well, well, let me, let me, let me just go on a little bit. My beef with your wonderful uh, guest today is that he said that there, this crime would eventually infiltrate our country. I think he misspoke by this crime, but 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 this crime has invaded many parts of our country over the last thirty years. My small family, so now she's going back from Mexico when she moved back to Texas. My small family lived in a small West Texas town, a town where my husband was born and grew up, served as a church deacon and treasurer by age 25, and every four years, people begged him to run for mayor. One day, my husband had the misfortune to discover the cartel running drugs out of a pottery shop next door to our retail store. Law-abiding and concerned for the community, he called his friends in the police department. You would think a man as admired as my husband would be protected by the police, but they refused to do so and told him we were on our own. Turning in a couple of white males running drugs for the cartel was unforgivable, and we were threatened. A few years earlier, I had stood up to the local LULAC organization when they insisted that it was racism keeping alcohol out of the family park. I had to explain to the LULAC president that unlike her, I had actually grown up in Mexico. The police said, quote, three strikes and you're out. And because of this previous crossing of ways, we knew we had at least two. In other words, two times where they were kind of, um, let's just say, speaking out against uh, some of the imported culture. She continues, the Texas Rangers abandoned our area just prior to that time. So it was local enforcement or none. Yeah, I, I definitely know that to be true in a lot of these areas. Um, you know, they just won't go there. We knew we had to go. 40 years old, we had our own home and business paid for by 80-hour-a-week hard labor. And yet we, the American citizen, living 250 miles inland from Mexico, needed to flee the Mexican cartel. Heartbreaking. She talks about having lived there... Uh, you know, since uh, Austin's time, Travis's time. I realize others have had it far worse. Angel families have paid the ultimate price, and it angers me to see them belittled. Others also pay a very heavy price for this invasion. From 2012 to 2015, I attended law school with a woman whose family fled their large West Texas ranch just west of Odessa, not on the border, but in the path of illegals nonetheless. The ranch had been in their family for over 100 years. Because of its size, they couldn't drive it in, in full in a day. Each drive brought the discovery of more and more cattle killed by illegals stopping for a meal of beef or finding cattle dead from lack of water. 
Illegals crossing would drink from their windmills, then destroy the piping and the tanks leaving their cattle to die of thirst in 110-plus degree temperatures. Local law enforcement wouldn't even attempt to intercede the illegals or interdict the illegals anymore. They wore guns on their ranch and dreaded the day they would be forced to use them. They finally packed everything up and left. Where we were able to sell our home and our retail location, though for not anywhere the amount we could have elsewhere, they were not able to sell their ranch because of the history of illegal crossings. Three generations of investment by hardworking Americans went down the drain. We fled to Oklahoma City in 2002 and started over. Though we love, love our new hometown, it has been desperately difficult to start completely over in middle years. I can certainly appreciate that, by the way, because um, I've lived in my area, my neighborhood, my entire life. So I could only imagine how hard it is to uproot yourself, you know, certainly later in life. Anyway, she continues, when we arrived in Oklahoma City, we were relieved to hear English spoken everywhere. The verbal abuse heaped on Americans by illegals warrants an entire letter of its own. In the 16 years since our arrival, however, criminal Mexican and Guatemalan elements have begun arriving. They have taken over the southwest side of town. This is Oklahoma City, by the way, and are working their way into parts of the northwest parts of town. Guatemala has opened a consulate on the northwest side of town. Oklahoma City news is filled with stories of carjackings, car chases ending in deaths, and drunks running over people from those areas of town. I wonder how the news stations keep from commenting on the fact that all of these crimes are committed by Hispanics with double last names. Sure sign that they are newer arrivals and an indication of lack of fear of removal. That's a very astute, um, by the way, astute uh, observation from Darlene with the, with the double names. Um, you know, as opposed to just, you know, Martinez or Sanchez or whatever, uh, because this guy that we talk about today in the article, um, Jose Avila, well, wait, that was his fake name. Ice gave me the real name. What is it here? Let me just give me a minute. Carlos Zuniga Avilas, right? A hyphenated name. Um, so they are a lot of the, a lot of the newer ones. Uh, let me just let me just finish this off here. Um, of course, legal status is never mentioned, and by the way, that's why that's why I try my best. And and God bless them. There are some good people in ICE. I now have three contacts in various field offices that are on to me, and they one of them actually uh, actively reached out to me. I'm just going to tell you this. I'm not going to give away a name, but one one guy actually said to me, Daniel, could you call me? And then I called him, and he said could you issue a formal media inquiry to me on the following and I could talk to you? So in other words, they cannot give the information if you, if you don't even, if you don't ask for it, just so you know. That's why there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of drunk driving, drug trafficking, beatings, kidnappings, rapings, murders of illegals that go on un- unreported. Remember, by the way, this is me talking. I'm going to get back to her closing. Um, when, when you have just in one year and every year, ICE apprehends in order to deport 2,000 individuals, con- mainly convicted, but sometimes only charged, but most of them were convictions, of homicide. 2,000. 
And every year they get that. Now, again, it doesn't mean that year. Usually it's they're getting them at the back end after they serve their uh, four to six to eight years in prison for murder. Not very long, but it's the back end, so they weren't committed that year. But again, it's garbage in, garbage out. It's a rolling cumulative flow because every year they keep getting those. So do you understand? I don't know how many people we convict for homicide every year. If you have that statistic, let me know. I don't know if such a statistic nationally exists. Some states might have it. I have yet to find it. I've even reached out to the head of the Bureau of Justice Statistics who wanted to meet with me. We never got a chance to, to meet together. Um, but what I can tell you, according to the FBI Uniform Crime Data, they only arrest about 9,600 a year for, um, for homicide. 9,600. Arrested. That, that's a much broader pool. Not everyone who's arrested did it. Not everyone who did it is convicted. And yet 2,000, most of them convictions of criminal aliens netted every year in ice sweeps for homicide. I'm not that good at math. But that is more than 20%. And again, if you had the denominator of convictions, I'd like to see that because that would be a more accurate portrayal. It's something like, you know, out of the 2,000 illegals netted, so let's say 1,700, 1,600 are convictions. So I take that 1,600 and compare it to however many thousands, probably a lot less than 9,600. Now, again, you can't go on and do the math and say, oh, so illegals uh, represent 4% of the population commit you know, 22, 25% of homicides. That much, I don't know if you could say that because it's not, again, we don't have year-to-year comparisons, but you get the point. It's a hell of a lot more than their share of the population. Anyway, she um, closes, where can an American go to live our heritage? Where can we go to ensure we can live safely into our old age? Where can we flee to? I don't want my grandchildren living the man-on-fire childhood I experienced in Mexico. Neither you nor I have voted for third-world status. Thank you again for your time and your willingness to take a stand on the most critical issues. Um, President Trump must call out the military to do the one act all Americans require, protecting the sovereignty of our border. As the mother of a Marine who fought in the hell that is Syria, I beg President Trump to pull our guys home and protect our people. That really was a gut punch, that last line of Darlene's email. I was like, oh my gosh. In addition to the story, she actually had a son who, who you know, figured, man, I'm going to serve our country. I don't know if um, this was someone who got in after 9-11, uh, but... And then, you know, instead they're sent to some meat grinder or whatever for who knows why, so we can import more people from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, while we're told, no, uh, military, uh, uh, posse comitatus, uh, I can't uh, fight the Mexicans uh, because uh, military only meant for Afghanistan and Syria, not for us because we suck. Um... I don't know what to tell you, but I mean, you know, I sense a lot of you have these stories or, you know, you certainly see this. Living where I do, it's more the native violence we have. It's not so much cartel stuff. 
Um, ironically, even though I'm in Maryland, but it's not this part of Maryland that much, but it's growing, growing a lot of places. There's a lot to unpack here. I mean, first of all, just the notion that you can't get away from it. And this is really where I think we are now. I mean, we all know large swaths of Texas, Arizona, um, California, and then urban areas throughout all the states. You know, certainly the East Coast, but you know, Chicago, St. Louis, they're gone. But the sad thing is, even rural places, I mean, we talked about this with Kansas, West Kansas, Somalia is being seeded there. Omaha, Nebraska, Sudanese gangs. And this also ties in to the freaking cheap labor where they don't recognize that you have a culture and, and, and security to take care of, that there's more to a country than your freaking lettuce picking, and that when you bring in hardy men from the third world, from a culture of violence, to do this labor, what grows up around those areas in the Great Plains, in the Midwest, and wherever else, in rural areas. Well, they become just as bad as Baltimore and Detroit, except with a foreign tinge to it. I know those of you listening are very much like-minded that you don't hate anyone. We love everyone. We, we, have no, we just want to live our unique country and its heritage, and its constitution out. There's only one America. Every other country has soft socialism or hard socialism. Every other country has these problems. Whether they are the third world, or they're the multi-culti first world countries that imported it. Could we just have one? And, and, and again, like I said, we seeded half the country, but could we at least have Red America just maintain itself? And that's my goal here. But meanwhile, you have Republicans, even in a state like Florida, solid red state. Now, you might laugh at me. What do you mean solid red state? It's a swing state. No, but on a state level, right? Presidential elections, it's, it's very close statewide. But in terms of the um, state politics, super majorities in the state legislature for a long time, every elected statewide elected official is a Republican. So they're doing some good with sanctuaries there only because of Ron DeSantis' leadership, but they're balking at him on mandatory E-Verify because they're all bought out by the cheap labor. Now, the good news is they did pass yesterday, 67 to 49, a bill mandating localities like Miami abide by ICE detainers and inform them when they're releasing someone after they, you know, posted bond or served a sentence. They fined them $5,000 per day for not listening. It heads to the Senate today, and there's um an amendment by Senator, uh, gosh, what's his name? I'm losing it. Okay, whatever. There's an amendment that's very clever. It would allow Ron DeSantis to nullify the office or basically remove any official that doesn't cooperate. Kind of like what he did with um, 
the Broward County Sheriff with his malfeasance in the with, with, with the school shooting there. But that's my goal, to at least make red America red, to at least make so-called conservatives conservative, to at least make Republicans or, God hope, another party, a party that represents the country class, our Constitution, civil society, the Judeo-Christian heritage of America. One party that's not bought in to somehow, it's conservative to want cheap labor and uh, criminal justice reform and uh, LGQ. I mean, this is what it means to be a conservative now. We're losing everything. With this iPhone culture of connectivity, we're all global citizens. We're all brainwashed. My hope is that we could take the people that still have that burning fire in their hearts that still yearn for the America that once was, not not in terms of abjuring the progress we've made technologically, economically, you know, with prosperity, and certainly the wrongs that were in previous America that we righted. We want to maintain that. But we also want to maintain the good things about our tradition and heritage and not throw out the baby with the bathwater as the left does. And um, instead, we're importing this subculture. I mean, you just look at Europe. I remember looking at Europe and saying to myself, you know, during 2014, 2015, man, God really smiled upon America by um, by ensuring that we're surrounded by two oceans. But little did I know, a time would come that under not just any Republican president, but under the president that got down that escalator in Trump Tower and launched his presidential bid on the notion that it's not the better ones coming here. We have murderers and rapists pouring over that border. And boy, are they pouring over every day. You just look at CBP's press releases. But under his watch, we would have a flow of, it's been over a million Central Americans since, um, since he became president, by my count. Maybe about 1.2 million apprehended. Who knows how many of the really bad guys we never even caught. And at this pace, if he does nothing, it's going to be another million, probably just in six to nine months. I don't know what you do with an America like that because that is an America that doesn't just transform the already transformed big cities or counties near the border. That's a flow that transforms everything in America. Where people like Darlene can't go to Oklahoma because that will be transformed as well.
this is the issue where we have to lay it all on the line. This has got to be our Alamo. You know, I think back to President Reagan toward the end of his farewell address, kind of the final part of it in 1989, delivered a couple days before he left office from the Oval Office. It's eerie listening to him already in 1989 saying this. As someone who was just a, a young kid at that time, I would yearn and die to go back to 1989. But already in 1989, Reagan said this. Those of us who are over 35 or so years of age grew up in a different America. We were taught very directly what it means to be an American. And we absorbed almost in the air a love of country and an appreciation of its institutions. If you didn't get these things from your family, you got them from your neighborhood from the father down the street who fought in Korea or the family who lost someone at Anzio. Or you could get a sense of patriotism from school. And if all else failed, you could get a sense of patriotism from the popular culture. The movie is celebrated democratic values and implicitly reinforced the idea that America was special. TV was like that too through the mid-60s. <sighs> And then he goes on to say, but now we're about to enter the 90s and some things have changed. Younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children. And as for those who create the popular culture, well-grounded patriotism is no longer the style. You know, that, that, that's true. That, that's what was happening with American culture. And American culture has only gone down, downhill exponentially over the last um, almost 30 years. But in addition to that, accentuating, exacerbating that problem, I, I think back to the fact that roughly around that time is when a bipartisan group of Republicans and Democrats recognized that the Hart seller Act, right, almost two decades of mass migration predominantly from the third world, was fundamentally changing in America in a way that was denied at the time that Hart Seller passed in 1965. And they set out to change it. People forget that ironically, 1990, in 1990, that immigration bill, which ultimately expanded change migration, guess what? Do you know that that bill was originally designed as an immigration enforcement bill? and a reduction in immigration. It was supposed to end, um, what do you call it? It was supposed to end cha uh, chain migration. Even Chuck Schumer was quoted as saying that, hey, you know, we need more people from Europe. I mean, we, 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 we got them on there. Truly an unbelievable thing. And sadly, sadly, it got hijacked. At the time, um, 
Artizide Zolberg. He's one of the leading immigration historians of recent memory. Um, he has a book, Nation by Design. He, I mean, he, like every academic, is a liberal, but he, it's, it's a good scholarly book, a Nation by Design. So he asked the question how a bill that was introduced amid anti-mass migration sentiment in the country wound up moving in the opposite direction. And he noted that, quote, while public support for reduction in legal immigration was broad, it was not well organized. In contrast, a liberal coalition of well-organized groups, including ethnic organizations, churches, and employer associations, articulated strong opposition to proposals for restricting legal immigration. A couple of years later, you had Harry Reid and several others who said, this is ridiculous. I mean, we're not going to have an America left if this continues. Yet nothing happened. Could you imagine we are over 30 million legal immigrants later, primarily from the third world, and certainly after that point from the Middle East, not only from Mexico, but now, but then started from Central America. Not that you can't have people from any country in the world that could have James Madison, Patrick Henry running in their veins after growing up in America and loving our culture. But when you bring in that many people that quickly from those areas, this is what you get. You can have immigration. Immigration is good in the right way. You can make it work like we did in past waves. You can make a melting pot work. Because you don't get 80% America and 20% foreigner. You get 100% American. No matter where they were originally born. Now mixed with everything, what you get is enclaves that are 100% anti-America. Just because of what you're building in. I mean, it's, it's obvious to anyone. You know, the fact that we've brought in this culture, one, one of the things that really struck me, I found just amazing. Um, when Darlene writes about, you know, a, a young woman um, who is lighter and blonde living in Mexico, not even being... Not, not not even having having the ability to go out on her yard without without um someone accompanying her. You know, it reminded me, and, and the fact that we're you know it's already in America, it reminded me of the fact that you know we have sex trafficking as an epidemic that the media will not talk about. Now it's mainly them trafficking their own people and illegal immigrants are victims of this. But there's also regular just native-born Americans. I can't remember this. And, 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 and set, draw me a note if you could find this. I, I can't remember offhand, but I could swear I saw this. A story of a woman in California. She might have been at a bus stop or something. She was kidnapped and sex trafficked for years. I mean, an American in, on American soil. This is such a pervasive problem now, but they won't talk about it. The same reason they won't speak the truth about the drugs because it would implicate open borders and the culture that we're importing. It's truly unbelievable. 
truly sad. Going back to our border, just get getting. I, I just want to get back to the mechanics of what's going on for a minute to to close this out. So many of you remember that the last couple of weeks I've been positing a theory that not only are we getting asylum law wrong and we're being lied to <clears throat> about what the law says, we're being lied to about the reality of what's even happening at the border and that a relatively small number of those even coming are even expressing a credible fear. So the entire premise of what's going on is a lie and we're just bringing in everyone and catch and release and amnesty, and it's straight up a nullification of every aspect of the INA, of our laws. And that if we are going to do this, there is literally nothing you could write into law that will change anything. Okay, There is literally nothing that will change the situation. So you got to stand and force Trump to do this and articulate it properly, or, or we have no country. There's nothing about, oh, Congress Act and this and that, and, and that's my fear. They're headed all in the wrong directions. They're stealing our laws from us, nullifying them as if they don't exist, and then telling Congress, well, okay, I'll give you amnesty and more immigration if you allow us to, I don't know, detain more, change credible fear, when it's already the law. It's already the law. We don't need to give away more of our country to the left in order to have the right to enforce our laws that were not only on the books since our founding, whether it's the states and colonies and then eventually the feds in the 1880s, but reiterated in recent history in 1996 to prevent this very thing. That has been my thesis. Well... I'll have an article laying this out with the data today. I don't know if this was an accident or he did it on purpose. But on Monday, what's his name? I forget which show that was on Fox News. Carl Landrum is the deputy chief patrol agent of the Yuma sector. In the middle of a monologue, whatever, he was just answering a question from the host, he dropped an unbelievable bombshell. Now, I believe it because I knew it. Quote, only 6% of the people crossing the border are expressing a credible fear and are requesting asylum. Only 6% are even expressing a credible fear and are requesting asylum. Now, to be clear, he said that specifically for his region, the Yuma sector, but remember, the Yuma sector is the third busiest for family units behind Rio Grande Valley and El Paso. This is a pretty good representation of the border. Now, I've heard rumors in other places it might be about around 10%. DHS has the data. They will not release it for political reasons at this point. But we have it on record from the Deputy Chief Patrol Agent of the Yuma sector that the third busiest Corridor for family units, which we all thought is the crux of the what's driving the asylum, only 6% are even expressing it. You, you understand the implication of this. You know, 
I already told you that I saw the USCIS asylum adjudication data that it showed the cases are not growing despite the border. In other words, there's been a 370% increase in family units for the first half of this fiscal year over the last fiscal year. So if almost all the family units are coming and saying they have asylum, they have a credible fear, you would expect that, well, there would be roughly a 370% increase in credible fear cases. It's, it's roughly the same as last year. Maybe it dropped more. In other words, last year we had 100,000 cases. This year we're on pace for 106,000 based on the first four months. To be clear, we don't have February and March data, which were the two biggest months, and that's why I was a little bit hesitant to write an article on this, but now with this guy's statement, I have it. University of Syracuse University's transactional records access clearinghouse. They have like an, a records clearinghouse where they track all this data. They have an analysis titled, quote, newly arriving families, not the main reason for immigration courts growing backlog. Since September, about one out of every four newly initiated filings recorded by the immigration court have been designated by DHS as family unit cases. That's 41,000 out of 174,000, but they note that the numbers are inflated. It's really a lot less than that because each parent and each child are counted separately, even though as court, um, as court cases, even though they're likely being heard together and resolved as one family unit. So they conclude that, quote, recent family arrivals comprise just 4% of the current court's 855,807 case backlog as of February 28th. Now, it's funny because the Syracuse University is liberal, and from their end, they're complaining that they're not getting enough asylum. But what's amazing is that you, know, you think, oh, I'm some right-wing guy. Oh, I'm making this stuff up. Here's a perspective from them. They say exactly what I have said, that every single one of these people should be immediately put into expedited removal, which means that they are all removed immediately as soon as you can get a plane ride. There is no review by an immigration judge, and there is certainly no review by the federal judges. That is the law that we passed precisely for this situation in the most emphatic terms. You will never pass a law clearer than that. And I talked about Back then, you know, my article last week about the need to expand expedited removal, which Trump could do through regulation because it was past administrations that wrote a regulation to undercut ER in statute and not fully implement it to the extent it's supposed to be implemented. But that was about doing it away from the border and people that have come here, you know, even a year or two ago. We're talking about those that are at the border coming in right now. Okay, so they for sure are subject to expedited removal, even under current regulation. So that's most of them right there. Now you might say, well, once you do that, Daniel, then they might assert defensively the credible fear. As I said before, there is no review of that either. All that allows is for you to go in front of an adjudicator and you turn it down. That's not a judge. That's Trump administration officials that he should have control over. Turn it down, and they're out of here. They have one appeal, no more than seven days. And again, this is all assuming he doesn't do a 212 shutoff. That's one option. 
option number two is you do expedited removal and then rocket docket those with credible fear done. They go back into expedited removal. Remember how I told you from the Congressional Research Service, CRS, that the jurisdictional bar, meaning the bar against court jurisdiction meddling in these cases, applies, quote, to claims that an immigration officer improperly placed an alien in expedited removal. Challenges to an immigration officer's credible fear determination. They have a whole list of things that the courts have no jurisdiction over. One of them is challenges to an immigration officer's credible fear determination. You cannot challenge that. That is final. In other words, the guy could be tortured for having his political beliefs, for being a religious group, straight up. And the asylum adjudicator clearly gets it wrong. It's unreviewable by the courts. That is the law. But it was just fascinating. I just saw this for the first time because I never read the end of that article. Syracuse University says what I say. Quote, families arriving at the border do not automatically have the right to file for asylum in immigration court. Under existing laws, such families must pass a number of hurdles. First, those simply coming for better economic opportunity are subjected to expedited removal by DHS, a purely administrative process that doesn't require a decision by any judge. Simply expressing, quote, a credible fear of returning to their home country is also not sufficient. Each family must pass a credible fear or reasonable fear review. Those that do not pass this review do not have an opportunity to proceed and present their asylum claims. Again, such individuals, meaning even those that express the credible fear, which is increasingly a small number, are, quote, subject to expedited removal from the country. So we are be- this entire thing is a lie. Now, the only alibi they have is to say, look, maybe that initially the invasion was catalyzed by the perception that everyone's making credible fear and you could just come here. But now because it brought so many, they're overloaded and they don't have enough room to even hold them for enough time to do expedited removal. But there's a couple of things you need to understand about that. So, number one, it's not true. They've had a year that they should have been preparing for this using all the technology they have, all the funding they have, and all the diplomatic browbeating of Central America, which we have a lot of, you will work with us, you will take them back, and you they should have long ago been planning airlifts. So we would have enough detention space if you'd be getting them out that quickly, which, again, you could get them out within a day with expedited removal. But number two, this leads into the next thing of Flores. Why have they not vitiated Flores? It's not an order. It's a settlement. They could rewrite the settlement. They did it in September to hold family units together for more than 20 days. They did that. So what's interesting is this um, agent the reason why he drops this piece of news that only 6% are claiming credible fear is because um, the host says, hey, you know, if we made it clear that you can only apply in your home country, wouldn't that be a game changer? And he was like, well, yeah, it would help with that. But he said, honestly, only 6% are claiming it. There were, it's really more detention space. Now, the problem is we can't hold them for more than 20 days. But what I'm arguing is you shouldn't need to hold them for 20 days if you're doing ER. It's only because they're not doing ER. 
This is the thing. Even the ones that aren't credible fear, which is most of them, they're not doing expedited removal for almost anyone. They're putting them into the regular system. They're giving them all a notice to appear. Everyone is getting a notice to appear. Yeah, that's not the law. Congress didn't want that 96, that they go into the black hole of the immigration court system and remain here. A, they're not supposed to go there to begin with, and B, they shall be detained. Instead, they're sending them there and then not detaining them. Two violations of law. But moreover, they could vitiate that 20-day thing. Those three things. Establish ER for everyone. Immediately turn down all the asylum claims and vitiate Flores. Any mix of those three would solve it even as a separate track to just shutting down all immigration, which should be done anyway. Pick your choice. Pick one of the two. And then, of course, all my other ideas holding the line at the border with the cartels, designate them as terrorists, militarizing the border, we could go through that. it, It is beyond me what is going on. We need to understand as a move, we need to create a movement just around this issue. I don't know if it's angel families plus more people, See, there are no lawyers for the American people. There are no defenders and lobbyists for the American sovereign. We need one grassroots group designated to this point. The stolen sovereignty issues. You know, heck, maybe we forum shop to favorable judges to sue them, the administration, the other way. We've been talking about the Alamo today. One of the famous quotes from Davy Crockett is, I have always supported measures and principles and not men. And that's the important thing we need to recognize with Trump. Trump is a vehicle to promote our measures and principles if we're willing to force him to do so. If we just get drunk on him as a man, we are going to wind up being backwards from where we were under Obama, particularly on this issue, because that is already true. That is already true. So um, I don't know where we are now. I don't know. And I'm, I'm honestly struggling with this as well to see how to take this to the next level. I, I do know the president is seeing our stuff, and I, I think that's good, and you guys are helping tremendously. I'd be a nothing without you guys. But uh, we got to take this to the next level, and I'm just I'm just talking out loud here, seeing how to do that. But um, we got to ask ourselves, what sort of country do we want this to be? What sort of country are we going to bequeath to to our children, grandchildren? That's essentially what Travis asked at the Alamo when he asked, you know, about what Texas is supposed to be. What sort of republic is it going to be? 
And unfortunately, very sadly, we see many years later what it is. You know, he asked at the Alamo, there have been many ideas of what Texas is, of what it should become, and we are not all in agreement. But I'd like to ask each of you what it is you value so highly that you are willing to fight and possibly die for. We will call that Texas. Look, we're not up to that point yet. But at some point, we're going to have to make a stand, at least politically. And I think we found our issue. We found our cause. We just need a leader and a blueprint. That's a big, tough hill to climb. But it's a hill we must embark on climbing because we just have no choice. I want you guys to enjoy your weekend. I'm taking a longer weekend. On Monday, I actually have a special show coming up in honor of our 400th episode with a chief patrol agent of the the Holton sector in Maine, northern border. We're going to discuss the challenges of the northern border, terrorism coming in, national security concerns, not so much quantity, but quality of what comes in. I'm curious what you want me to ask him. This is going to be the first time we actually have an official on like that. I'm very thankful that he pushed hard to come on the show. Really good guy, Jason Owens. Let me know what you want me to ask him. You could always email me at dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Till then, God bless y'all. May God give us the insight, the energy, the strength, the intuition to come up with a solution to preserve America as a beacon that is deserving of this blessing. Thank you all for listening. God bless you.